0: There's really no way to transition from this. We're just going to make a sharp left turn to a very uh, random question that I have for you. I'm not even going to try to get cute with it, guys. We're just going to make a sharp left turn here. It's a question that uh, is random. It's a question that uh, for some of us will feel very appropriate, though. Did you know, church, that the average toddler asks two to three hundred questions a day? Parents are like, oh yeah, we know. Yes, yes, we know. Did you know that by the age nine... The average child will have asked 40,000 questions. Parents, there's a reason you're tired, right? You're, asking, you're answering a bunch of questions. Here's the deal. A bunch of these questions are why questions, right? Why? 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 You're like, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Uh, pray for the parents. Some are good learning opportunities though, right? Like, mom, why can't I touch the stove? Because I love you, and I don't want you to get third-degree burns on your fingers. Uh, Some are just there to push boundaries. Dad, why can't I eat ice cream for every meal? Uh, I'd love to eat ice cream every meal. You can wheelbarrow me up onto the stage next week, right? (laughs) Right? Uh, Some questions are just bizarre. Like, really, genuinely bizarre questions that only children can ask, right? You know, Dad, why can't I see my eyeballs? (laughs) What? I mean, like... That is a profound question. You see through your head, but you can't see them. That's interesting. Uh, some questions are existential. Some why questions, right? You know, Dad, why did God create mosquitoes? Yeah, I'd like to have a word about that, right? Like, what, what, what did these do before the fall? What were they doing that was beneficial and, in, in, you know, enabling life? Because uh, they seem really awful right now, right? That's going on? And then some questions are the big questions in life. They're both existential and bizarre. And they're the questions that, you know, a parent, they just knock you on, off your feet here. And so questions like, Mommy, why does Daddy have nipples? <laughs> Be careful, Stephen, you get your mic cut off here. Uh, <laughs> see, but then kids grow up and some questions turn challenging. Why, why should I clean my room? Some questions get rebellious. Why do I have to listen to you? And I think it's important, church, that we have answers to the curious and the challenging questions. I would pray that, you know, the, 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 my child, when they grow up and they, they will inevitably ask that question, why do I have to listen to you? The answer they would know is because your father loves you, because he wants what's best for you, because he delights in your flourishing. And maybe, just maybe, he sees some things you don't see. And I want to say, God gives us a very similar answer when the hard why questions we ask. And today what we're going to look at, church, is Peter preemptively answering a why question. See, last week we talked about the call that Peter gives in 1 Peter chapter 1. You can start turning that direction. In verses 14 through 16, Peter commands us as obedient children, be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy as I am holy. See, Peter writes to the church. He calls us to live as obedient children and be holy like God. If you have questions on that, and those are loaded terms, go listen to last week. Jose did an awesome job. Uh, there, Peter told us what to do, but today he tells us why to do it. Because the honest question is why obey God with such allegiance? The earnest question could be why live holy and distinct, honoring God in all that we do? Why should we do this? And so today we're going to unpack Peter's answer. Why? Why should we obey? He gives three reasons. One, the Father's judgment. Two, the Son's redemption. And three, our hope in God. Let's get after it. A bunch to dive into. Number one, the Father's judgment. Look with me starting in verse 17. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Good morning. Glad you're here. We've got some real Hallmark uh, card content here in First Peter. Peter's really concerned to make us feel all the warm fuzzies here this morning. Uh, God's going to judge you. Live in fear. You're welcome. Good morning. Uh, here's the deal, church. I didn't write the Bible. i got to be faithful to it, though. One of the benefits of preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, is we can't ignore the stuff that's uncomfortable or hard or challenging for us. So we're just going to dive in uh, this section. There's been an image we've used, this image of the chili, right? And it's there's a bunch of good ingredients thrown together. Uh, this same section is one run-on sentence. Peter is just throwing together all these ingredients. But today we add some new ingredients to the pot. Today we add the spice. Today we add some heat. Today we add some smoke. We got the serrano chilies going into the chili here. And so here we go. Got a couple things that we're going to break down from this one verse because it is packed. First, we'll ease into this. Peter says that God is our Father. If you love Jesus and believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are adopted into God's family by the Father. This means you have a new family name. You have a new destiny, a new identity. You are loved. You are chosen. You are forgiven. You are free. One, God is your father. Two, second, Peter says that this father judges impartially. This means that God judges with absolute fairness. God will not allow evil to go unpunished. God will not allow injustice to triumph. And he will set all wrongs right. See, when we think about the word judgment, often we think about it in really negative connotations or it a, has a really uh, overwhelming sense to it. But actually, I want to say here this morning that judgment actually is good news from God. For God would not be good if he just looked at all the atrocities in the world and just shrugged his shoulders and said, eh, it's all going to work out in the end. If God looked at all the abuse, all the injustice, all the oppression, all that is evil in the world and just said, hey, can't we just hug it out? God would not be good if this was the case. If God looked at everything in your story that's broken, all the evil things that have happened to you, and said, can't you just get over it? He would not be good. No, our God is a good Father who judges with fairness and justice. Amen? We're going to talk back and forth here a bit. This is a family gathering. God's a good Father, amen? And i got to do a quick aside here, church. God alone enacts. Just judgment, justice is God's idea it flows from his character God is the very source of all justice see from the first books of the Bible we see God instructing his people Israel to live just lives to create just societies and to image and reflect and honor God by walking in the way of justice the very idea of justice is rooted in the Bible it finds its source in the Bible The only reason our society today even has a concept of justice or has a concept of basic human rights is because we have inherited it from the Scriptures. Christians should be the people who care the most about justice because we worship a God who is just, who has commanded us to walk in his way of love and justice. And I want to say, church, justice is not a threat to the gospel. It is the fruit of one who has been changed by the gospel. Justice is not a threat to the gospel. It's the fruit of one who's been changed by it. If you have a passion for justice, that's good. It's true. It it images God, yes. But know that the only place we will ever find true justice is in God, according to the way of God found in the scriptures of God. For he alone is the God of all justice. See, God is a good father, and he is just and true. And there's a third thing I want to pull from this verse. And here's where we start turning up the heat a little bit. And that's that God judges each person's work impartially. See, this is not just a theory of judgment, this is not an abstract conversation about the idea of judgment. This is not merely, oh, God's gonna judge your enemy. That sounds like pretty good news. This is not even God's going to judge the person you think deserves judgment. Let's got to be honest here, right? When you're driving and you see the person who's driving like a maniac on the freeway or you see the person that's blowing through a red light, you're praying, God, would you judge this person? Would you bring a police officer right now and bring down your perfect judgment on this person? But when you're speeding because you're late for work, it's God, would you give me mercy and would you allow all the police officers to be on break right now? We want judgment for everybody else and mercy for ourselves, right? We want... You know, uh, we want reckoning for everybody else, but for ourselves, we use some grace. Uh, for us, we have a good understanding for what's happening. Everybody else, fire from heaven, right? <laughs> Going on. Here's the deal what this is saying is you will be judged. I will be judged. We will be judged. And we got to let this sink in. Everything you have ever done, everything you have ever said, everything will be judged. By God. I say this is heavy, this is intense, and this is real. And the question is how are we going to respond to this, church? How are we going to respond to this? And Scott McKnight, he's a theologian. We've been following him closely through this series. He puts it well. He says this If believers call as Father the one who judges indiscriminately, penetratingly, and absolutely honestly, then they better live in fear of this God. For he is altogether holy and will judge justly. See, this leads us to our fourth reflection. This verse is saying the only proper response, Peter tells us, is to live in reverent fear. Again, these aren't my words. These are God's words. Let's look at verse 17 again. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. What in the world is Peter talking about? Reverent fear, what does this mean? Because when I say something like you should fear someone, that doesn't invoke great images. Let's just be honest, that's not, that doesn't sound like good news. Like what are we talking about here? Let's talk about what it's not. We're not talking about a paralyzing fear or a terrorizing fear. We're not talking about, you know, you picture like the horror movie is set, right? It's the dark hallway, the music sets, you know, there's the door creaking, you know, the light kind of flickering in, you know, all that what our building's going to be. And then, you know, it's under construction, right? Like, and this going on. And you're just waiting for the moment when the monster, boom, just like comes out and gets you. And there's a sense of like this terrorizing fear. God's not sitting here being like, wait on pins and needles because I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. Like, that's not what this is about at all. On a really serious note, it's not an abusive fear. It's not a, you know, you better be quiet, sit in the corner because I'm going to mess you up if if you make me upset. That's not at all in any way what is going on here. That is not uh, what this means. What we're talking about is reverent awe. Reverent fears about reverent awe. It is, wow. It is, God, you are amazing. It is standing before His greatness and saying, Your holiness, you're, you're amazing. You are awesome. You are majestic. You are above all. It's the feeling of being in greatness. It's the feeling you get when you go to the Grand Canyon or to Cannon Beach, you go to the ocean, and you stand there and you say, wow, this is amazing. No one goes to the Grand Canyon and says, I'm pretty awesome. Like, you stand before the power of the ocean and you feel small. How much more to the God who just spoke a word and the oceans existed? It's a reverent wow, a reverent awe. That is what the fear of the Lord is. The NIV Study Bible defines the fear of the Lord as, this is helpful, a loving reverence for God that includes submission to his lordship and to the commands of his word. See, the fear of the Lord is about a loving reverence that leads to true obedience. Proverbs 1-7, it's a famous part of Scripture that talks about the fear of the Lord. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Elsewhere, it says the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of life. What this means is that the fear of the Lord, reverent awe of God, is the foundation of all godly living, wisdom, and knowledge itself. See, if we properly understand what Peter's saying, it's going to produce a healthy fear and awe and humility and reverence and deference and submission to God. Again, not terror, not anxiety, but it's a a healthy recognition, a necessary recognition of the holiness of God and the lordship of God over our whole life and over all of life itself. See, the fear of the Lord is about complete and total reverence that leads to complete and total obedience. For our complete and total life is going to be judged by God. I'll repeat that again. The fear of the Lord is about complete and total reverence. That leads to complete and total obedience. For our complete and total life is going to be judged by God. That's a lot. We tracking? Right, we ready? To keep going. You're with me. I know it's a lot. We got the spicy chili. We got got got, a, got this going on. Let's keep moving. Stay with me now. This verse, and we're going deep. We're like four things into one verse, right? We got God as a father. We got that God judges impartially. He's going to judge each of our lives, and we got to live in reverent fear. We got a fifth thing. We're going deep. One verse in, a fifth thing. Peter says that we are foreigners, but the question is foreigners to what? See, the church is called to live as strangers, as exiles, as foreigners in the ways of the world. I'm not talking the physical world. I'm talking about the systems, the structures, the cultures that go against the way of God that are in our midst. Peter's saying that the church is not at home with the sinful patterns of Rome. They're foreigners to the idolatry of pagan gods. They are foreigners to empire worship, to lust, to greed, to a love of violence. And that anything else that will go against the way of Jesus, Peter says you're foreigner to that. They were called to love their city. They were called to love the people. They were called to affirm what was good in Roman culture, but they were called to resist what was evil in their midst. I want to say for us today, church, we're called to do the same thing. We are called to love our city. We're called to love the people. We're called to affirm what is even good in Portland culture. And there's a lot. This is a beautiful place with beautiful things. I'll tell you, we didn't just happen to come upon like the greatest coffee in the world. It didn't just happen that you throw a rock in any direction you've got like amazing coffee, amazing food, amazing places to eat and enjoy. This is rooted in a value, in a culture that values art, that values creativity. And as God is the creator of all things, as he is the chief artist, even creatives and artists that hate God and don't recognize him image him inadvertently in their creativity and art. And so we say, yeah, that's good. Thank you, Lord. There's going to be great food and drink in the kingdom of God. Amen and amen. Also, we see a heart for things like inclusion or love or diversity. These are not flavor of the month social issues. This is rooted in the very heart of God. God is love. Even the desire to have something like diversity, we see at the end of history. The end of the story is a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every single people group is represented around the throne of God. There will be unity in diversity. If you hate diversity, you're going to hate the kingdom of God. It's God's idea. And so we sit here and say all these things, even when they get warped and twisted, the the root of them, we can say, hey, there's something good there. But what we got to do is not just affirm the good, but we also resist what is evil. We are to be foreigners and strangers to the way of Portland, of Hillsborough, of the Pacific Northwest that are marked by sin and idolatry. And idolatry is not just worshiping in some foreign temple to statues of, you know, gold or something like that, to foreign deities. Idolatry is anytime we make a good thing, a God thing. A good thing, an ultimate thing. So we take something that replaces our affection and our allegiance to God. It's something that sits in the place only God should in our life. And so we are foreigners, church, to the suburban ideals of family and career and money and security when they become ultimate. We reject a culture that says that time for family and career Trump's time with God and his people, that we'll get around to church, we'll get around a small group once these other things get together first. We reject that. We're foreigners to that. God has our first allegiance. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, we are to be exiles to any political allegiance in any direction, in any way that asserts itself over allegiance to Jesus and his gospel. We are strangers to an individualism that idolizes and worships the self. We are to be foreigners to the mantras of live your truth and you do you. We are foreigners to all of this and we live in accordance with the way of Jesus. Because church, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. So we are foreigners to any other. We don't just have a new life. We have a new responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God and members of the household of God to live in obedience to God. I want to say this is a hard word but it's an important word. It's that you and I, we do not run our life. We are God's children, which means that we belong to God. We are not our own. God created us, God called us, God adopted us, God is Lord over us, and that is good news for us because God is a good Father who loves us and wants what is best for us, and He calls us to obey us. He calls us to obey Him for our good. And I think any parent can recognize this, that the call to obedience is actually a call of love. Would we see God's call to obedience as a call to good news, So a couple questions for us as we process some of this. Where do you think God is calling you to turn and live in alignment with his way? What in your life is God going to judge and say, no, that was unfaithful. Let's turn from that. You know, the word repentance is a churchy word, but it it means turning. Let's turn from that stuff. What in your life is God going to judge and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's turn to that. For one day we are going to stand before God. This is important. If we're going to talk about obedience, we've got to know what we're called to obey. Church, we need to be a people that gets in the word and knows what his word says. We need to be a people that knows the heart of God, that experiences his presence through prayer and actually knows the heart of God so we know what to obey. Would we be a people of prayer in the book? We have the prayer and fasting guides. Join us Mondays as we seek the face of God together. Here's the deal. See, Peter is doing something here that makes us uncomfortable. He just does. We just have to call it out the way it is. He is warning us. Peter is warning us. God is warning us through Peter. But here's the deal healthy, legitimate, loving warning is part of any good parenting or leadership. Again, I think as parents, we know this. Warning is part of love. I got a three and a half year old. There's plenty of warnings we got to give, right? Here's the thing Uh, I tell my son don't touch the stove. Like there's a warning there. Oh, We also say he's got one of those, uh, his, his aunt and uncle gave him this amazing gift uh, for his birthday. It's like one of those, you know, Jeeps that, like, it's like the remote control that you sit in so you, like, feel like you're in the car, right? Uh, and we tell him, you can't drive that in the street. Like, I know you feel like you're a big car, but you're not. The car's not going to see you. It's going to go bad for you. You can't drive that out in the road. It's a warning. We we recently went to, uh, as a family, we recently went to Cannon Beach, which, wow. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> We've been sitting on this for a long time. How is this not better known? Uh, what's going on? We're from California. We know good beaches. We like pulled in and we're like, holy cow. This place is amazing. It's like America's best kept secret, which probably means I need to stop talking about it right now. Uh, but here's the deal. Like, we get to the ocean and we're telling our son, like, you don't turn your back on the water. You know, you got to be careful of, uh, you know, tides coming in. Apparently there's tsunamis that happen over here. That's, that's different. Uh, you know, you get these things going on. you, you got to have a healthy fear of the water. You know, you, we don't want our son to drown. We don't want him to get knocked off his feet. We don't want him to be in danger. Part of enjoying the beach is a warning about what it means to engage there. And God gives us warning for our good. And uh, my seminary professor, his name is Mike Goheen, he uh, was a mentor of mine, and he had a great image that helped me understand a lot of this stuff. Uh, picture with me, i got an image here, of a suspension bridge. Some of you getting a little wobbly leg just looking at that, right? But imagine uh, you got the suspension bridge, and you got the, the deck you walk along, right? And then you got these two guardrails. And what this is, is the commands are the deck. Picture this. The commands God gives us are the deck that we walk along, and the promises and warnings are the two guardrails that keep us from falling off the edge. And so when God calls us to walk uh, in his way, he gives us commands to walk along and warnings and promises to hold on to. And if we didn't have the warnings and promises, imagine walking out on that bridge with nothing to hold on to. It's like one of those fair rides that you like walk on. It's like, you're not going to make it. But God gives us these things in love. See, Warnings are given to keep us from falling into presumption. And uh, promises are given to keep us from falling into discouragement. We need both to stay on the path. And in our text in 1 Peter, we're called to obey the command echoing from verse 16. Be holy. Obey God. We're called to heed the warning. Grab onto a guardrail in verse 17. Everything you do is going to be judged by God. Heed the warning. Grab on. We also, though, need to believe the promise in verse 18 and 19. Grab on to the promise. You have been redeemed by Jesus. And so why do we obey? How do we walk in this way? Grab on to the warning. Grab on to the promise. So why do we obey? Number one, the Father's judgment. And number two, our second point, the Son's redemption. Look with me at verse 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed From the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And I just want to say, praise God. Peter didn't stop in verse 17, but he kept writing. Amen? Like, can you imagine if the verse ended? You know, your whole life's going to be judged by God, so live in reverent fear. Grace and peace, church. Good luck on the journey. Like, good luck. Like, (laughs) praise God it doesn't end. Praise God verse 18 and 19 are here to give us hope, to give us a promise, and to give us good news that Jesus has redeemed us. Amen? Three of us think that's good news. Thank you for being with me here. Two things to pull from from this verse. We're going to get there. Is what we're redeemed by and what we're redeemed from. I think we're going to see this as good news as we continue. First, what are we redeemed by? Peter makes it abundantly clear. We are redeemed only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our redemption is not sealed with silver. It is not bought with gold. Our redemption is not found from anything this world can produce. Its source is God, for He alone never perishes. And what I want to say is this is not just a one off thing for Peter. He says this elsewhere in the Bible. Look with me in Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, In Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Church, our hope in life and death is Jesus. It has always been Jesus and it forever will be Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus Christ in his redemption. And Peter, he adds a detail and it's important. He says in verse 19 that Jesus is a lamb without blemish or defect. See, Peter is Jewish. He knows his Old Testament. In the Bible, it's one unified story. And the entire one is is one of God's redemption. And Peter is connecting Jesus' death on the cross to the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. See, in the Old Testament, people were called to obey God and offer sacrifices without spot or blemish. In the book of Hebrews, in the Bible, it helps connect some dots for us because you might be like, Stephen, where are you going? How does this all connect? What are we talking about Old Testament sacrifices for? Hebrews helps connect some dots. And again, I'm going to give us a lot of Bible. We're going to do a lot of Bible here at 26 West because my words, sometimes, you know, helpful. God's word is authoritative and true. So we got to open it up and we want to get into it. Amen. And so here we go. Hebrews 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never be by the same animal sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What this is saying in Hebrews, what Peter is saying in First Peter, what the entire Bible says is that Jesus is a better sacrifice. He is the true Lamb of God that actually takes away the sin of the world. See, the good news is that through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross— As the perfect sacrifice, he takes my record and he takes my punishment and gives me his record and his righteousness. This lamb, Jesus Christ, on the cross once and for all bore the punishment for our sins, satisfying the justice of God on our behalf. See, at the cross, Jesus, he substitutes himself for me and you. At the cross, he is found guilty and I am found innocent. And what an exchange it is. In short, Jesus redeems us. See, Jesus lived the life we were meant to live. Jesus died the death we should have died. And Jesus gave the gift we could not earn. As Christians, church, we need to hear this. As Christians, we will be judged by God, but we will never be condemned by God. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's good news. Our life will be judged by God. We will be held accountable. But because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, We will never be condemned. We will never be condemned. This is good news. Peter says what we're redeemed by. Think of the old hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We'll get the band back up. No. I was a worship pastor for 10 years. We can do this. Uh... We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But he also says what we're redeemed from. Not only does Jesus redeem us from all sin and death and evil, amen and amen, he does that. What's interesting is Peter doesn't actually highlight that in this text. That's true, amen. But he also redeems us from futile, meaningless, empty ways of life. Peter says, you can look at it again, verse 18 and 19. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. What does this mean? These are the ways of life that are common around us, handed down to us. These are the waters we're swimming in, but they don't lead to life. And I think we've got to press in. What does this mean for the original audience and what does this mean for us today? What is Peter saying to them and what is he saying to us? Well, to them, Peter is addressing a Jewish and a Gentile uh, audience of Christians. Gentile just means non-Jewish. And these are Christians with different backgrounds. For the Gentile, for the non-Jewish Christians, their futile ways that they inherited were worshiping pagan gods through things like prostitution and idol worship. They would have gone down to a temple and offered these offerings and thinking that this will help, uh, this will lead to blessing in their life. They, they would, uh, there was allegiance uh, in, in the pagan world to, to empire, believing that it would protect them. It was living out of the perverted, greedy, violent desires. Picture like the arenas of old. They thought this would satisfy. This was all rampant in the culture of the Greco-Roman world. But for the Jews, there was a different futile way, and it was found in cold religion, but it didn't produce genuine, warm love for God or for his people. See, it was attending the festivals. It was going to synagogue. It was offering at the temple it was thinking that God would be pleased with mere religious activity versus a heart that honored and loved God. And yet what we see is Jesus sharply rebukes this line of thinking in the Pharisees. We see that they did all the religion. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for fasting. He doesn't rebuke them for praying. He doesn't rebuke them for going to synagogue. He doesn't rebuke them for studying the scriptures. He rebukes them that despite all of this activity, they neglected the weightier matters of love and mercy and justice. They didn't love God and they didn't love others. So it was cold and it was dead. And today, I believe, there are some futile ways that are handed down to us as well. But like Peter's original context, I think there's a couple different flavors. I think there's two flavors that this can look like. I think there's worldly deception and dead religion. We're going to look at both. The futility rooted in worldly deception is basically, there's a lot of different flavors of this, but it all finds its source in some version of the American dream. And so what I'm going to do today is I am going to do my best to make all of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to make fun of all of us in the room a little bit. I wanna, uh, hopefully all of us will feel picked on. And if you don't, I'm sorry, I'll try to get you next time. Uh, so we're going to hopefully be an equal opportunity offender here because these are all different versions of futility from worldly deception that says the American dream will satisfy. Because There's a lot of different versions of this. And what I want to be clear on, this is not, any of these things are not bad in and of themselves. But they're futile when we look to this way of life, this vision of life, this American dream as being something that can ultimately satisfy and bring us life. When we look to that, it's futile. So let's give a couple examples. Let's all get uncomfortable together. Uh, one version of this worldly deception is you'll be satisfied if you can just have the new house with the big yard. You got grass, man. This is in Arizona. You got grass. Down the street from the park with the dog. You got one of those trendy, like golden doodles, right? You got the dog. You're not one that sheds. You got a good dog, right? You got a, a nice school up the road. Just, we can walk there, you know, the picturesque little, like, walk our kids to the school. It's going to be great. You, you got the, the great marriage and the obedient kids, and you know, that's a miracle. Uh, you know, imagine that. Your kid's like, yes, Father. Yes, dearest mother. Whatever your your wish is my command. You know, you got parked in the driveway. You got a sweet SUV. There ain't no minivans in this vision. Give me a break. You know, a forerunner runner going on? A Hummer. That going on? You know, <laughs> You got some good vacation time, double what you got right now. This vision says, if you just had that life, with that house, with that vacation time, with that marriage, with that family, then you'd be satisfied. It's futility. This life won't satisfy, and it won't give you meaning. Maybe some of y'all, that feels like, that feels like an old dream. I had that one, and I've, I've, I've matured. I've outgrown that. Let's just pick on you a little bit. The empty nesters. You know, if you could just have the full pension, the good 401K, right? Uh, you got the house paid off. You got grandkids that are in proximity. You ain't got to put those kids to bed. Eh, parents, you go do that. We're relaxing, right? Because here's the deal. When you're a parent with young kids, you got to fight tooth and nail. It's like going to war to get a date night in, right? Empty nesters are like, this is just a Tuesday, guys. Right? I get that going on. Like, I get to relax. I got the RV and the boat. I can finally travel and see the world. So I I put in my time. You might be thinking, if I can just visit those places, hey, in this vision, that says it'll satisfy. You can snowbird. You can spend summers here and winters in Arizona. You got to ever deal with the rainy season again. And as good as that sounds, it won't satisfy, and it won't give you meaning. According to the Bible, it's futile. To my millennial friend, you're not getting off the hook. Give me a break. Our futility says if you can just drive a Subaru, wear some Patagonia, live in a downtown loft with some exposed brick, you know what I'm talking about. You get to be downtown near the art and the coffee and the music. If you can just travel to those Instagrammable locations, if you can just go to Banff and see that teal water, if you know, you know. If you just have those experiences, eat at those places, you know, if I can just have that curated feed, which is my curated life, if I can just have those people follow me, then I'd be satisfied. Futility. This life, this picture, it won't satisfy and it won't give you meaning. See, worldly deception says if you just look like that, Like the wow version of you. Like all your resolutions fully realized then some wow version of you. If you just had that body. If you just had that degree. If you just had that bank account. If you just had that job. If you just got to live out of your truth more fully. If I just wasn't single. If I just wasn't married. Futility. This life, whatever it is, fill in the blank. If I only had... If we look to that, It will not give us satisfaction. It will not give you meaning. It is what the Bible calls futile. To quote the book of Ecclesiastes, it will not settle the eternity in your heart. I'm gonna keep quoting that old hymn. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus can make us whole. Only Jesus can satisfy. So that's worldly deception. I hope you got a little bit uncomfortable at some point or at least had fun with me on that. But there's also a dead religious futility that doesn't lead to life as well. And I think we're here in church. I think this one is more insidious and it does not lead to life as well. See, a checklist Christianity says, if I go to church, if I attend a community group, if I give money, if I serve, then God can't allow certain things to happen in my life. See, a futile, cold, dead religion is one that turns God into a spiritual vending machine. And we just pump in our spiritual coins of worship and obedience and church attendance. And then he's got to pump out blessings. And I want to say, church, uh, old pastor told me this once. He said, Jesus is not the key to unlocking your treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is not the key to unlock what you really want. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the end. Anything less than that is futility. See, it is a dead religion that's, that produces a church going, small group attending, tithing follower of Jesus who's a jerk on social media, who doesn't love their neighbor, who, who is just as loyal to their political party and to their Savior and scriptures. This is futile. It is dead religion to think that following God means church attendance and some spiritual posts on social media. I want to say, church, that Jesus was not tortured to death to redeem us so we could give him a couple spare hours on the weekend. Futile. And here's the thing. Jesus redeems from all of this. The good news is I... Almost everything I said, some part of me thinks, oh yeah, that'll satisfy. I'm tempted by all this stuff. And so are you. And I think if we sit here thinking, that ain't me. That's just some level of self-deception we gotta we gotta reckon with. Say, this is all of us. And the good news is Jesus redeems from all of this. Because here's the reality: it's all of us. Don't get discouraged. And how, why do I say that? Because God is committed to working on you. So much so. How do you know? See, how do you know that God's committed to me? He died for you. How do I know God's committed to you? Because he put his spirit in you. He's so committed to you, he didn't want to leave you. He's drawn as near as you can. God put his spirit in you. I have hope because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I have hope because greater, uh, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and gives life to our bodies. We're not stuck. We're not helpless. We're not hopeless. Because Jesus redeems. See, the big picture of all this is Peter's talking about obedience. He's saying, obey, church. There's motivation. You've been redeemed from this old way of life. You've been redeemed from this old stuff. Jesus set you free. He wants you to live in freedom. Don't go back to the old ways of living. It's like someone's emancipated you from slavery. Don't go put the shackles back on. Don't jump at your old master's voice. You've been set free. Romans 6 says, Paul declares, we are those as Christians who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It's like you've been forgiven. Imagine you were $10 million in debt and someone forgave you this debt. And then they just forgive you and get you out of the red. They got you clear. They also gave you ten k just to say, hey, we want to get you back up on your feet. It's generous, great gift. But then imagine you go take that $10,000 down to the casino and go put it all on the black. That'd be crazy. It would show that you are not even understanding what's happening and that your old way of life is just going to shipwreck you once again. We've been redeemed from an old way of life. Don't go living in the old ways. Now live in a manner worthy of the gospel. See, Peter is a good pastor. Jesus is a good shepherd. And he wants you to live a life that matters, a life that truly satisfies, a life that counts, a life that ends with Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter in and rest. And I want to say, church, this can happen. The ingredients are love Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus. We want you here at 26 West. Every one of us wants you to experience life in Jesus, to live a full life, to live a blessed life, to live a life that means something. And the only one that does is one fully surrendered to Jesus. See, following Jesus as Lord and Savior means obeying Him. If you use the Word of God not as a suggestion, but as marching orders, Jesus is our Lord. We're called to obey him. And Peter gives us the the warning, your life will be judged by the Father, but then also the promise your life will be redeemed. But he also gives us a third ingredient to help us, and that's hope. So our third point here, why obey? Because of our hope in God. I want you to look at verses 20 and 21 as we begin to land the plane here. Verse 20, he was chosen, that's Jesus, before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Jose said this last week. It was so good. He defined hope as biblical hope is not a wish and it's not wishful thinking. It is confident expectation. So here's what we're gonna say as we land the plane here. Here's what we're hoping in church. We hope in what God has done not in what we will do. We hope in God's work, not in our work. Our hope is not in our circumstances changing. Our hope is in the God who is unchanging, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Our hope is not in our strength. It is found in God's strength. Our hope is not in our ability, but in God's ability. Our hope is not rooted in us holding on, but our hope is in God who holds all things together. Our hope is not in a pandemic ending. Our hope is in the God who makes all things new. Hope, church, for verse 20 says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. This plan to rescue the world, it was foreknown. It was all according to plan. God is in control. When life feels like it's spiraling out of control, when you don't understand what's going on, hope for God is in control. Hope, for verse 21 says, church, That Jesus is alive. Hope. We have a living hope because Jesus is alive, church. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. He is not dead hope for the very gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We hope for Jesus wins. We hope for he is glorified. We hope for he is seated right now in power at the right hand of God. And he's coming again to make all things new. Our God reigns. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And no matter what comes our way, this is unchanging. And that is good news to hope in. Amen. God's judgment brings hope. For one day, all wrongs will be made right. God's redemption brings hope, for we are saved. We are citizens of God's kingdom, and we are members of God's family. I want to say in suffering or in success, whatever 2022 brings through it all, church, our faith and hope are in God. This is a God worth obeying in all of life. This is good news worth believing in for all of life. So, in closing, church, as the band comes up, obey Jesus, walk in his way. Church, fear God, for your whole life is going to be judged. Believe in the good news that is promised that the Father redeemed you through his son, Jesus. And keep hope, church, for Jesus is alive. He is good, and one day all things are going to be made right and new. And in light of all of this judgment, and all of this justice, and all of this love, and all of this power, in light of it all, obey God and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's do it all for God's glory, for your joy, and for the good of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that our hope is in you. Our hope is not found in anything we can muster up. It is found in you. We thank you, Jesus, that our faith was not started by us. It is not sustained by us, and it will not be brought to completion by us. We thank you that it was started by you. It is sustained by you, and we will be brought to completion by you. So, Lord, we come here and we just respond We don't come here to get you to love us. We come here because you already love us. We know this because, Jesus, you've died. You rose again. You've poured out your spirit. Lord, for those that needed conviction today, I pray that you would bring it. For those that needed comfort, I pray that you would bring it, Lord. Would we hear what you want us to hear from this? I don't want to conjure anything up here. Lord, I pray that we would see you, that we respond to you. And your good news, Jesus, thank you that your blood, that your redemption washes away all of our sin and makes us whole. This is our hope. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.